With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the Rex Chapman Show with my guy, Josh Hopkins. So back again this week, powered by basketballnews.com. Hey, Josh. Yeah. Um, you want to get to book club real quick? Sure, let's do that. Let's uh, yeah, book club the segment we do every week, talking about uh, what we've been reading and uh, you know, kind of report on it. What have you been reading, Rex? I didn't read anything this week. What about you? Yeah, me either. That's been book club. So, what? Who we got this week? You know who we have, Josh. Uh, I, I've I've been excited about this one. Um, this is one of my heroes. I know it's one of your heroes. We have the one and only. Jamal Mashburn today. Uh, I don't know what to do. I'm so did you two with this this my guys. These are this is the guys I take. If you could have do one uh, lunch with two guys, it'd be you two. And I get to be here for this. I cannot wait. I'm giddy too, buddy. Uh, Jamal is one of my favorite people in the world. I, I remember him. Man, I'm going to say I was probably 21 when he showed up as a sort of a pudgy 17-year-old straight out of the Bronx in New York on the UK's campus. And, man, he set the world on fire. I'm, I'm such a fan, and you'll see, I'm such a fan of his basketball, of course. But it's his brain, his mind, just a fascinating, curious, curious and humble person. And I can't wait for you to talk to him. Uh, let's let's get to it man i, I want to get into it this, i can't talk shop right now let's get to the monster man how are you hey i got no complaints man i'm down here in miami beach florida uh you know who's going to listen to my complaints anyway so i'm good are you still you must still be working out you look skinny man i'm still working out man i got a as you know i got a son and, and you have a son as well uh, he's going to he just committed to the university of new mexico uh with richard so he keeps me busy man he keeps me busy and uh, uh keeps me grinding uh, as much as work and also i actually just left the gym with him a little while ago so so i stay at it i stay at it. josh josh came in uh, josh is from lexington i don't know if you know josh from acting and all that stuff but uh josh yeah, is from lexington <laughs> And he's, he's, I think you're grade. Is this correct, Josh? Uh, same uh, grade, high school? I think I'm one ahead. I think I graduated high school in 89. Oh, yeah. I graduated in 1990. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But huge fan. I mean, you two, everybody knows, like Rex is my guy growing up in Kentucky, just a few years older. And I'm a huge, I just followed him around the mall, that kind of guy. I was a year older than you and followed you around and asked for your autograph. <laughs> I'm humiliating myself, but uh, this is you two. Me talking to both of you at the same time is almost too much for me. <laughs> I mean, even as a 50-year-old, I'm just geeking out. I would say you two are my top ever, but on my Mount Rushmore, you'd be joined by Wall and I believe Tony Delk, my favorite. Okay. 
Wow, I'll take that. That's that's yeah, pretty good. I, those are my four, and I got my top two right here that were there's no question who's on it. So I'm gonna listen to you guys talk basketball, and I'm just gonna sit here and be like <laughs> I want to. I, I want to. I want to ask one thing right off the bat. I, I talked to a, a common friend of ours. I won't drop the person's name today, but uh, I'm supposed to ask you how much trouble did Vinny Tatum get you in your freshman year at UK? You know what's funny about that is uh, 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 Vinny Tatum. We actually got Vinny in trouble. You know what I mean? Vinny. Vinny, Vinny was a, a square. Uh, 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 you know, didn't do too much. And uh, me and Jamel Martinez got a hold of him. Uh, me and Jamel were roommates my freshman year all the way to my junior year. And Jamel being from Miami and, and me being from New York City, we connected in, in such a way uh, that was unbelievable. And still to this day, Jamel lives in Ohio. And we still uh, talk, to every, talk to each other every now and again. But um, Vinny Tatum, you know, uh, he, he was the... Uh, we, we kind of uh, instilled a little bit of a city into Vinny Tatum and we launched a career that I don't think Vinny could live up to, you know, so he's still getting in trouble. But no, good friend of mine. We stay in touch and uh, we used to take road trips down to Miami on spring break and different things like that. Um, so Vinny's a good, good friend of mine and a uh, uh, um, solid, honest guy. Yeah, Coach P is the one that told me to ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what's funny is Vinny didn't even have a, a – nobody knew that Vinny didn't go to University of Kentucky. You know, so he, no. he went to Lexington Community College, and his brother was a manager, and Vinny used to sit on the uh, uh, his couch and play video games. So that's how we started to connect. And then also – me and Jamel didn't want to pay for cable, so we spliced his cable. You know? <laughs> so, so there was a lot of things going on at the podcast that we can't, we can't comment on, you know? And plus, uh, it's, those are the good old days for sure. You know, having you two together here, it's also because two titans in, in Kentucky basketball history, but you're also linked, forever linked, in that when Rex left the program, he left it in utter shambles. Like it was as low as we've been. And then you came and resurrected it. So I would like to thank you and say, what well, a nice work, Rex. Really Thanks, nice buddy. work. Thank you, Mash. Well, thank you me, so much. I appreciate that and appreciate the love. But you know what? I, one thing that I will say, well, I have a lot of things to say about Rex is um, Rex actually, you know, for me, he was the guy, him and Kenny Walker and Sam Bowie used to come back every summer and play pickup game basketball with us. Uh, Rex more than Sam. Obviously, Sam was dealing with some health issues at that time. But that was a big help for me, um, actually experiencing the University of Kentucky, because you're sitting next to a legend when they called it Rexington, Kentucky. So I was a young kid, and I remember that, you know. And, uh, and he played for the Charlotte Hornets and everything like that. So it's a lot of kudos to Rex and Kenny Walker and Sam Bowie by what people know today is alumni coming back to play pickup basketball. You know, Rex actually started that, you know, with us. And we used to condition together, uh, uh, play pickup together. So he gave me my first insight into what a professional basketball player is supposed to look like. Wow. Wow. That's still, you, what, what are your first impressions when you played? You, I guess the first time you played was down at Memorial and pickup games. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have do you remember just meeting one another and do you remember first impressions of, of each other's games? Well, first of all, you know, Rex was um, uh, a, a great guy, a great dude. He talked a lot about on the court and off the court, spent a lot of time uh, with me and, and a lot of the other guys. And the thing that I 
admired about Rex was, you know, his ability to be personal, but also understand how to be professional as well, you know, and how he went about his business, you know, of preparing himself and, you know, watching Rex play and really getting the up close and personal look at him. I mean, you know, everybody knows the stats on Rex, but, you know, his ability to catch and shoot off balance, the fadeaways, those were things that a lot of people um, have in their game now, but didn't have in their game back then. It was a, Back then, people call it a bad shot, but actually it wasn't a bad <laughs> shot. It was actually a good shot, you know what I mean? Because athletically, above the charts, you know what I mean, in, in, in Rex Chapman. So, you know, he was always a, uh, uh, a guy that I'd always looked up to and admired, and especially being a part of that University of Kentucky program and his legendary status. I mean, uh, uh, it, it was just good to meet somebody who um, just shared a bunch of information you know, about the NBA, about Lexington, Kentucky, different things like that. What clubs to go to, what clubs not to go to. You know, the so, <laughs> so Rex is my barometer for everything. Everything Lexington, Kentucky. This episode of the Rex Chapman Show with Josh Hopkins, who is awesome and cool, sponsored by Blue Chew. Hey, Rex, Blue Chew is an online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in a chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. This unique service is something a lot of guys could use. Yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of guys looking for some help in the bedroom. Yeah, yeah. And if you're interested in this uh, spectacular new product, Blue Chew is bringing more confidence to the bedroom by offering chewable tablets that can help men get stronger, longer lasting erections. <laughs> he said erections. Grow up, Rex. Okay, you're making it weird. Okay, Josh. But with Blue Chew, it won't be weird. No visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Tell me Blue Chew is shipped right to your door in a discreet package. Oh, oh, it is. That's exactly right. The process is simple. Sign up at BlueChew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part? It's all done online. Blue Chew's licensed medical providers work with you to find the right ingredients and strength for your prescription. Blue Chew tablets are chewable, made in the USA, and shipped direct, so it's cheaper than a pharmacy. So if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you use promo code REX at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's BlueChew.com promo REX to receive your first month free. And we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring the Rex Chapman Show with Josh Hopkins, who's super cool, powered by basketballnews.com. Like you said, when, when I left school, school went on, we went, went on probation. Um, and I, I wanted to come back here in the summers and to Lexington because it was my home, you know. Um, but it, it wasn't at the time. We didn't have great run the previous summer. Because, you know, there weren't a lot of high caliber, even division one players on our, our squad. Then you came in. And when you came in, that really did it. It sort of made I, I was like, well, hey, look, he's going to be here for a while. I, yeah. He and I can play against one another every day. Um, he's about to be better than me in no time flat. It's exactly what I thought. I mean, you were just a little pudgy. You had your high, high top fade, uh, your box cut. Um, Rick, Rick was oh, yeah. running you and had you on the treadmill. Uh, but right away, what stood out was obviously your ability to handle. 
the other thing that stood out was your ability to pass and then at your size, but above all that, you were, you were so humble and so hungry, you know, um, I, I want to know what your first, well, and, and you, you did say it, what happened with, with me coming back and playing in the summer, I started playing with you guys. We started getting more players. Then it's me, you and Kenny are playing in the NBA and we're playing every day against, you know, Derek Anderson and Ron Mercer and Antoine Walker. And before long, this was the place to play your summer games all through the nineties. Um, and I, I want to piggyback that onto that's why I, I played in a lot of games, won many lost many. I've never had one game and we can talk about it more later that I wasn't physically in that crushed me more than that Duke game. And I, I you know, I know we laugh about it and we, we do all that stuff, but I remember cause I was hurt at the time. Imagine that. But I was back in Lexington with a broken shin and you guys were playing. And uh, I'll never forget. I was despondent when the shot went in. Um, oh, you and, but, and everyone. And I, I want to I talk more about that. But I just want to say, Mash, you know, you're, you're one of the best dudes. Obviously, you've, you've done so many things, but you came in humble, hungry, and then you paved the way for what became, what came later with, you know, all those teams Rick had and then on into Tubby because you were here when Tubby was here and Billy Donovan and all of that. And then into Cal, you know, we all overlap. Mr. Bill connects us all our, our wildcat, Mr. Bill, uh, our longtime equipment, equipment guy. But Mash, let me ask you, what, what was the, when you came to Lexington, what was your impression coming straight out of New York? I mean, what yeah. was that like for you? Well, you know, uh, I took a visit uh, my, I think it was my senior, going into my, well, my senior year of high school and took a visit to Lexington, Kentucky. And I told Coach Patino, I didn't want to take a visit during basketball season. I wanted to take it during football season or some other activity because I wanted to get the impression of what the school was going to look like for me year round, not just giving one snapshot of just the basketball season. So when I first got to Lexington, I think it was sometime in September, and we went to a Kentucky football game or something like that. And Sean Woods was actually my host. Um, and so we went around. So nobody never really – I never got the full engagement of what Kentucky basketball meant. Um, I think the, the thing that stuck out the most at that particular time was the day we went to the football game and Sean Woods was signing autographs going into the football game. I'm like, you know what? I don't even know who Sean Woods is, you know? <laughs> you know? So that was the first thing that kind of stuck out to me. Like, hmm, interesting, you know? And then, um, and then I remember, and a lot of people don't know this story, is that, you know, when you go on a recruiting visit, Rex, you're, you're there Friday, Saturday, you leave Sunday. Um, Friday, we went out, hung out, different things like that. I had a breakfast meeting with Coach Patino at 8 o'clock in the morning downtown. At, I think it was the Marriott, I believe, or one of those hotels. And I told Coach Patino at that breakfast, I'm coming. And he was like, you don't want to see anything else? Like, what's, I said, you know what? I'm going to be honest with you, uh, uh, Coach. And um, at the time, I would call him Ricky P, Rick, or whatever. You know, that's, that's just how we, we communicated. And he said, you don't want to take any of the other visits? Because that was my first visit. And I was supposed to go to Syracuse the, the next week and actually wound up going. 
And then I canceled. I went to Wake Forest after that. And for me, what it was, was just the environment that Coach Patino and the culture that he was setting. You know, back then we didn't have Google or anything like that where we could Google Maps or, or a lot of information online. I basically went on the media guys that they sent me, basically. And on that visit, when I got a chance to touch and feel the campus, and I knew Coach Patino was a professional coach coming from the New York Knicks, and I wanted to be a professional. So for me, it just made a lot of sense to play for a guy who was a professional basketball coach at one time, and then also his style of play, um, being able to be versatile. Um, uh, that was important to me. And, you know, I, I arrived on a plane and I was like, hmm, this is out here. You know, I never heard of it. You know, I yeah. was like, wow, okay, uh, this is out here. But at the end of the day, what it came down to was the people that I got in touch with at the University of Kentucky in my first visit there. Um, I don't make decisions based upon institutions. I make it based upon the people that make up that institution. And that was critical for me. And, um, and Coach Patino, he didn't have to do a lot of selling. And then I didn't realize about the Kentucky basketball until um, I didn't get nominated for the McDonald's All-American game. And I was player of the year, uh, Mr. Basketball for New York State. And Coach Patino called me up and he was like, you know, they had the Dapper Dan Classic and all those mm -hmm. different things. And I refused to play him. I did not want to play him. And he was like, why don't you want to play with him? I said, first of all, I think they snubbed me as a McDonald's All-American. <laughs> and, and second of all, I'm really not an all-star type player. You know what I mean? I, I want to get down to business and I don't want to be a part of a showcase. So he, um, the people at the, uh, I think it was the Kentucky Derby, the, the Kentucky uh, uh, McDonald's game, they invited me, and I had no idea what I was getting into. The Derby, the Derby Classic. The Derby yeah. Classic, correct. And it was played at Freedom Hall. Right. And, um, uh, and I came down and um, got off the plane, and I'm like, wow, <laughs> this is a little different. You know, I'm like, God. <laughs> the whole stadium was packed, and then they had Louisville players on the other side. I think it was Dwayne Morton. I think he was and Greg Miner, I believe, that were on the opposite team. And – they were calling out introductions, and I'm like, they said Jamel Martinez. Now, I never heard of Jamel Martinez. I, I, I had no idea. And uh, they were hollering, and I'm like, wow, this is different, you know? So <laughs> that was the first time I really got an insight into what Kentucky basketball meant as far as a recruit coming in was that derby class, you know? And then I was still a little unsure because we had a group of talented players on both teams, so you never really knew, you know, how they were going to respond. And then my first day I got on campus, um, I kind of realized then that uh, this was something different. And then we played those uh, exhibition games at different parts of the state of Kentucky. Yeah, yeah. those were great. Yeah, those yeah. were great. Maybe barnstorming or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, barnstorming. Yeah, so I remember we went to, uh, I think it was Pikeville or Paintsville, a yeah. couple of different places and played. And um, that's when I was like, okay, this is, uh, uh, I signed up for something different, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but um, my mentality was always, you know, my mother instilled into me is be humble, um, uh, go about your business, uh, you know, treat everybody as how you want to be treated and I want to be treated well. So it was pretty easy for me to really navigate the University of Kentucky basketball program and how people embraced us because uh, I never 
took myself too serious at that particular time. And then I also learned from guys like Derek Miller and Reggie Hansen and how to deal with certain things. So I often tell people my first introduction into professional basketball, um, not by payment or anything like that, was how to conduct yourself and be a professional the way Reggie Hansen conducted himself. So it's almost like, Rex, you know, when you come into the league, you know, NBA, there's that veteran guy that pulls your coattail to say, hey, this is how you got to do certain things. And Reggie Hansen was that guy for me. He's a great guy to do it. He's a great guy. Reggie Reggie was my roommate at UK. He was my roommate. And then, but here, I want to set the table for for the listeners. Um, When I left school in 88, we had... I was the only underclassman that played. We had like five or six seniors in that Ed Davener and James Blackman and and Winston Bennett and Paul Andrews and all the, and so none of the underclassmen played. I was getting ready to come back to a team that um, really didn't have any, any experience at all. Um, Sean Kemp was coming in, but he ended up not staying. Um, So I was looking at, but the guys that were on the team were Darren Feldhaus and Reggie Hansen and John Pelfrey. Those guys basically redshirted. They were a year behind me. Reggie was my grade, um, but he redshirted his freshman year too. So when I came, when I came in, those were my or when I was there, those guys were so young and they didn't play much at all. And now you're playing with those guys, and and you're making you guys are good, really good. I mean, you obviously you elevated the play of these guys. Rick elevated the play of everyone. I remember coming back the first summer and, and Darren Feldhaus had lost like 25 pounds. I was like, what are you doing, man? He said, Rick's only let me eat turkey and mustard. <laughs> True. True story. True story. Yeah. Rick Postpatino was a um, you know, I still speak to him to this day. We're in business together on a lot of different things. And obviously we, we communicate him being an Iona. And I went over to see him in Greece when he was coaching professionally and stuff like that. So um, Rick was intense, man. Rick was. Uh, um, but also what I liked about um, Coach Latino was he was honest, you know, and he told you exactly what he needed from you. And if you were uh, there or not there, and he always challenged you. And one thing that I loved about Coach Patino was Coach Patino made every practice competitive. He made it competitive. Everything had a win or a loss attached to it. So me coming in my freshman year, I never played college basketball, obviously, and I didn't know what to expect. Never played in front of 24,000 people in Rupp Arena. Growing up in New York City, you probably get a gym maxed out at 3,000 people, and that has to be a great game that's going on because there's so many other things going on. And the one thing that I will say about Coach Patino is Coach Patino got people to play above uh, of what they thought they could play just by getting them in shape, you know. And I remember Richie Farmer. I remember my first day of conditioning. And, um, and Rex, you might remember this as well. They had us run to the track. Yeah. <laughs> and the track then run sprint. A mile and a half away. They had us run to the track. So the first day, Coach Patino has this thing called Wildcat time. So I'm like, okay, well, he says, well, if you have to be, if, if 
Wildcat time is 15 minutes before the time that actually you have to be there. You have to be there early. So it's two o'clock. It's really one forty-five. I'm like, well, just say one forty-five. Why don't you say you know, two o'clock? So I didn't know about Wildcat time. My teammates left for this run. I show up at Memorial Coliseum across from Wildcat Lodge at two o'clock. Mr. Kitely and Vinny Tatum drive me to the track. I get to the track. They all run uh, a finish running to the track. They're sitting on the thing stretching. The first day we had to run 12 220s. That's halfway around the track in time. Guards had a certain time, forwards and centers. And then you had to run back to Memorial Coliseum and play pickup basketball. So my first four weeks at the University of Kentucky, I thought I was on the track team. I didn't realize that I was on the basketball team, you know? <laughs> same thing, Matt. I had the same experience, but I do remember that for sure. And also I remember, you know, and – I remember it for myself, but I remember it for you because yeah. those first two or three weeks, you don't, you can't even play well. You, right. I mean, like you were spent from yeah. being running over there, run sprinting, running back. You were, you were spent and you know, you had to be doubting yourself at that point in time. Right. Yeah. So funny story is and coach Patino can back this up. Uh, I'm sitting on the track and we actually during this conditioning period. So coach Patino had two levels of in shape. You got in shape on conditioning, but then he would say, well, you're not in basketball shape. Like, well, he's like, that's just the start. So when you get on the basketball court, there's another set of conditioning that you have to do. So Coach Patino remembers, I'm sitting on the track. We ran those 12 220s. And I actually, me and Jamel, we're laying on the floor, throwing up. Nobody tends to us. Me and Jamel actually get a ride from one of the janitors at the University of Kentucky. That's how long we were out there. It was getting dark. And me and Mel must have transferred out of the University of Kentucky about 10 times before we got to our door. Like, we, we, we're not going to this, you know? So, so a lot of people don't realize that because of Coach Patino's uh, conditioning, me and Jamel, Jamel's like, I'm going to University of Miami. I'm like, I'm going to St. John's. Because we never picked up a basketball um, once we got there, you know, it was like conditioning and there was no way you could actually go and play pickup basketball because yeah. your legs hurt, your hamstrings hurt, you're doing weightlifting. And that was the first time I ever lifted weights. So Coach Patino almost didn't let the dynasty start because of his conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I do. I love hearing about how you were indoctrinated into the culture of basketball. But hold on a second. Here you are from the Bronx. Yeah. You, uh, gaucho, yeah. you know. You lived very close to Rucker, right? Yeah, right down the street. Playing at Rucker Park, that that you know, that's the throne of pickup basketball. I lived in New York for in this uh, off and on, mostly on for a decade. It's really different <laughs> than Kentucky. So besides basketball, the culture of moving to Kentucky, like what did you do when you moved into Lexington? They said, "Here's your teammate, Richie Farmer." <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny? You know what's funny about that? Richie Farmer was probably the closest guy to New York City than people thought. Richie yeah. had a lot of hustle in him, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so Richie actually was what's interesting about that. Richie could have actually been from the projects that I grew up in in New York City and would have fit in quite well, you know? So me and Richie got along very, very well. Um, but to answer your question, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we couldn't, or at least I couldn't, 
travel the way I wanted to travel because as you know, New York City trains and buses. And in Lexington, Kentucky, it's not the same. You have a bus, but it comes on a schedule. New York, you know, every two minutes, you know what I mean? You can kind of, you know, get different places. But in Kentucky at that time, it was like every hour or something like that. And even if they drop you off somewhere, you walk in a mile to get there. So for me, what was the critical thing for me was, first of all, my roommate and Jamel Martinez, we held each other down because we were from the city. But also, too, when you get to become a student athlete, you don't have time. You don't have, people do not realize you're working two jobs. You know, um, you got academics and yes, we did go to class. Coach Patino made us have eight o'clock classes in the morning, you know, which is unheard of for at least my son right now. We had to go to class at eight o'clock in the morning and that's how our schedule was set. So our timeline was eight in the morning, on Mondays, it would be 8 in the morning to 12. And in between that, we would have a thing called individual instruction, which is an hour of working on your skill set with the coaches. Then you go eat. Then you would have practice for a couple of hours. And then you would have study hall. You look around, it's 9, 10 o'clock at night. So there wasn't a lot of time. I mean, we went out and everything like that. But the work that was required um, didn't allow you to get homesick or miss a lot of different things because you were you were moving from point A to point B rather quickly. So it, it, it's time consuming. It requires a lot. And I remember me and Jamel Martinez sitting in our room and we used to uh, do the alarm clock for like just 10 minutes just to get sleep. I mean, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's challenging, you know, yeah. but we had a lot of fun. We really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, uh, I miss New York, but I was in, I was busy in the process at that particular time, as I say. So, so um, um, I didn't realize that, you know, certain things I was missing from New York other than the transportation piece. You know, we had a TV that we spliced cable from Benny's room. Um, <laughs> we had meals that we can go get. Um, I created this Papa John's $5 special for the Wildcat Lodge. You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> there you go. Always the businessman. Always we were, the business. We were all good. You know what I mean? We were all good. So it was, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that experience. Yeah. Mash, when when obviously your mom big, uh, was a big influence, you know, you talked earlier about, you know, you weren't placing your faith in institutions, but in relationships and people. When, when at what point in your life or were you always so mindful and thoughtful? At what point did you think about business and finance? When did you, when did that start? When did, when did you realize that basketball could become the vehicle for all of that other stuff? Because honest to goodness, I grew up in Kentucky, came up, went to UK, uh, two parents. uh, I never thought about it. I never thought about it. Uh, So I'm genuinely fascinated. Yeah, for me, it was about uh, 10 years old. And, um, uh, you know, my mom, uh, let me back up a little bit. My mom was a bookkeeper for the New York City Housing Authority, and she came from Beckley, West Virginia. And um, she wanted to go into the military. She's the old, she was the oldest of six kids. My mom passed away a year ago. And Sorry, Matt. Uh, I, I appreciate that. She lived a great life and taught me a lot. So, you know, it's, 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 it's a, a part of the, the journey. And she always wanted to travel. And 
And um, she never got the opportunity. She wanted to become an accountant, but she never went to college. So she taught me early by sitting in her office when she would collect rent um, from the projects that she worked in for the housing authority. And because we couldn't afford a babysitter or aftercare, as they call it now. And so she used to sit me in her office after I came from school from three o'clock to five o'clock. And she used to teach me debits and credits, meaning how to receive the rent. And at that time, people would pay down on their rent every month. So some people didn't have the ability to pay it all at one time. They would stagger it. So she taught me just by watching her and observing and us, her pointing out some things of how to balance the books. So I was always fascinated by numbers. And then what my mom did was she put me in a Catholic school in downtown New York City from first to fifth grade. And then another one from fifth to eighth grade. And from fifth to eighth grade, I used to ride the train down to a school called St. Jean the Baptist in, uh, near Lenox Hill Hospital. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Uh, uh, over there by Hunter College down there on Lexington Avenue. And I used to see a lot of people when I ride the train um, carrying a briefcase when it got to past 100 and I want to say 10th Street and people wearing a tie and different things like that. So I was always curious of what was in the briefcase. And then also I was fortunate enough to see my dad become a professional boxer at the tail end of his career. He fought Larry Holmes, Ken Norton, uh, spar with Muhammad Ali. Wow. And he never really made a lot of money at it because I grew up in a project. So I started to understand professional sports from the underbelly of it, where a lot of guys don't make money, where it's not glorified or, or you have the, uh, uh, the big house and the fancy cars. My dad was considered a professional boxer, but he was fighting on short notice for like two or $300. So I got a chance to really experience that. And then growing up in New York City, growing up in Harlem, I always made it a mission and my mom drilled this into me by taking me outside of Harlem and taking me to museums, taking me to uh, different parts of New York City, Chinatown, Little Italy, and exposing me to different cultures. Wow. And my mom was the first one and she used to do this on every Friday. And my mom didn't have a lot of money. She would take me to white tablecloth restaurants and taught me how to read a menu and different wow. things like that. Like she was preparing me for something, you know? And uh, um, so for me, looking at my dad's situation and then um, looking at my mom, all I did was in looking at the train riding experience, I said, you know what? I want to carry that briefcase. And I had no idea what that actually meant. And years later, I figured out that a lot of guys who carry briefcase don't have shit in it. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I found that out. So for me, it was the idea of utilizing your brain to move forward into something else. And then I just applied that to basketball as well. Because as Rex uh, pointed out earlier, I can handle the ball and I can pass the ball. To me, that represented your IQ of understanding the game. And I just consistently broke it down and figured it out. Nobody ever taught me to play basketball. I watched Magic Johnson and Larry Bird on CBS tape delayed and then went outside the next day and tried to emulate that. So I'm very visual. So how I learned how to shoot was by watching pros. You know, uh, never had instruction at that level until I got with Coach Patino. And so for me, I was looking for how can I do the opposite of my father, 
and be successful, utilizing professional sports. And he wound up becoming an NYPD special services officer. Wow. Um, and I didn't want to do that. Um, so I just decided if I'm going to go after this professional pro career, that I was going to have something to fall forward to. Because my mother always used to tell me, you know, what's your fallback plan? And I always looked at it, well, fallback means like I'm not going to reach the first one, you know? Um, so what about fall forward to something? And that was important to me. And that's when I got the appetite for being an entrepreneur, even though I didn't know what entrepreneur mean. And, you know, Coach Patino, when he was recruiting me, he was the, I was highly recruited coming out of high school. He was the only one that actually listened to my business dream. I've had Hall of Fame coaches that approached me at 17 years old and actually laughed at me for having that particular dream. Yeah. I, can, I won't state their names or anything like that, but literally just laugh at me. Why would you want to do that? You know, and I'm sitting there and I'm like, huh, that's interesting. So I immediately knocked them out the, out the box of recruiting. And Coach Patino was the only one. He said, I can help you. And, um, and it went from there. And that's how Coach Patino started the relationship with me, even though it was prior to that at five-star camp. And he was the only one that didn't look at me or make me feel like I was saying something foreign, you know. And um, I realized then that, you know, he had my best interest in heart, you know. And I left it up to Coach Patino when he recruited me I said, hey, I want to be in business and all these different things. I want to be a professional basketball player. I'm going to play in the NBA. And if I'm a four-year player, I'm a four-year player. But if I have the chance to leave early, can you let me know? And he did. After, after my uh, sophomore year going into my junior year, he told me, he was like, Jamal, this is your final year. You know, uh, no reason for you to come back. And uh, it was his honesty, his integrity, and the way he looked after his players – beyond the game that drove me to coach Patino. And, um, and even to this day, he's always been honest with me and told me what he thought. And uh, so for me, him participating in that dream of me carrying a briefcase was pivotal, pivotal for me, because when you're 17 years old, you know, you don't know, you know, you have an idea of what you want. And sometimes other people can, other adults can crush that idea, you know, and he did, he fostered. That's great. Before we go on to more basketball and business, and, and I want you two to talk NBA with and against each other, but you talked about your father being a boxer, and I'd love to know if there are any anecdotes he told you about boxing those guys, about sparring with Ali or, or you know, like any, any particular stories that stood out to you? Yeah, my dad, my dad and mom split when I was 10 years old, and um, I, had, I was the only child, so I have no brothers and sisters. And um, so for me, me and my dad had a little bit of a strained relationship and it's gotten better over a period of time, especially when you become an adult, you start to see that, you know, your parents are humans at the end of the day. And my father, uh, my mother was adamant that he's not boxing. He's not boxing. You know, she, she was adamant about that. So you can do anything you want to do, but you're not boxing. You know, did he teach you a little bit of the sweet science when you were young? Yeah. He did. Yeah. John. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he taught me a lot. I mean, my dad was, um, uh, he was a student of the, the boxing game. So he used to tell me little tricks like, and I used to get in a lot of fights when I was a kid, a lot of fights, like street fights and stuff like that. Um, and I held my own. I can't say I went 
I had a Floyd Mayweather perfect record. <laughs> you know, I was competitive, you know, you know, I was competitive, you know. Uh, um, so he would teach me things like stepping on a guy's toes when they box in, punch them in their forearms, punch them in their shoulders so you can't lift their arms and you wear people <laughs> down over time. So uh, my dad taught me a lot, but that first time he brought me in that gym, boxing is very different. And what I mean by different is, you know, there's not one thing about basketball. You can find joy in practicing by yourself and shooting around. Boxing, you don't really find a lot of joy hitting the back, you know, <laughs> especially over a long period of time. It's like, this is hard, man. You know, and, and then you go to another level. And this is how my dad got me out of boxing. They put me on a bag for three minutes, and that was the longest three minutes that I've ever experienced. Then I realized that they put me in a ring that that bag didn't hit back. Other people hit back. So that day I was like, you know what? This is not for me. You know, I'm good on this. You know, I am totally good on this. And that next day I told my mom, and, and she's like, you ain't going back anyway. So I, was like, so I was in the clear. So, so he taught me some things. And the one thing I will say about boxing is my dad did teach me was about breathing, you know, how to breathe, how to control your breathing. And that's what I picked up from boxing because right. when I got to University of Kentucky, <laughs> being on the track team for the first eight weeks, you had to learn how to breathe, you know what I mean? <laughs> Sucking into your nose and out through your mouth or hold it for a little period of time. So all those things played a part. But what I learned mostly from my dad is uh, – Sometimes people teach you what to do, but also people teach you what not to do. So my dad represented that for me. He was, you know, my mom was like, you know, hey, ask a lot of questions, you know, uh, uh, tell people what you want, see what their agenda is and different things like that and what they want from you. So uh, my dad played a pivotal role along with my mom in my development. But, you know, boxing was not in the cards for me. I was originally a baseball player. That was my first love, was being a baseball player. Oh. Did it all. I like it. Now, now yeah. a huge businessman. Look at this guy. Yeah, I try. I try. <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. Rex, ask him some minutes. So, so, well, I, I was going to, after the worst loss I've ever seen, getting beat by Duke uh, in, in your last college game, um, I want to just gloss right over that because it's so painful. I can only imagine for you. Um, it's actually all right for me. It's actually all right. Yeah, you know um, – that was the end of my sophomore year. Um, I had a chance to turn pro then. Um, and then I went to my junior year and turned pro after I played against the first dream team. That's right. That's um, right. My junior year. So for me, the way I looked at that Duke Kentucky loss, it was interesting in the seat that I sat in. Our first year, we couldn't go to the NCAA tournament. But sorry, we had, we had a parade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah, probation, yeah. And I had nothing to do with it. I was paying for your sin, everybody else. And I had nothing to do with it, you know? Uh, uh, but that was cool. I was good. I was good with that. Um, but what was interesting was we were still one of the better teams in the SEC my freshman year. And we couldn't go to the SEC tournament or the NCAA tournament. And I recall that when we um, finished, we had a parade. And, you know, it's like, wow, we had, they gave us rings, SEC champion, even though it wasn't acknowledged by the SEC. Yeah. Down the nets. Yes. Yeah. No. Yep. 
So no, we didn't cut down the nets. We had a parade that led us to Rupp Arena. And then we had an award ceremony that year. And everybody else is in the NCAA tournament. That's and right. Like we're in a bubble doing our own thing, you know? Like, like <laughs> I'm like, wow, this is awesome. So I saw the love that the University of Kentucky and the state of Kentucky had for the players that stuck with the program. The Reggie Hansons, the uh, Darren Fellhouse, Derek Millers, the Sean Woods, the, the Richie Farmers and the Pelfreys. And John Pelfrey and that, they call them the Unforgettables, were coming back my sophomore year. So a big part of my drive and plan was to help them experience something that they, th- that they didn't think they would experience by going to the NCAA tournament and playing deep into the tournament. And a lot of people don't realize this when you look back on it. You know, Duke, that Duke team was looked at like the Chicago Bulls. Right. They were, they were the face of NCAA basketball. Bobby Hurley, who I played against in New York City because he's from Jersey and St. Anthony's. So we had some history. Myself and Grant Hill, we came up together at 13 years old. So I've always knew uh, Grant um, and his parents and everything like that. Um, Thomas Hill, Antonio Lang, and people like that. Didn't know Christian Leitner that well until I got into the pros a little bit and played against him on the first dream team. But that game, that Kentucky-Duke game, to me, was very pivotal and not only Kentucky's trajectory and building its foundation for where it was going to go, but to me, it also gave thanks to those unforgettables because they're a part of a game that yeah. we'll in history as the best I've ever played. And to be a part of that and to uh, be in the moment of that game with two Hall of Fame coaches, win or lose, when you're a part of that, nobody was actually the loser, in my opinion. We felt the emotion of losing, and we understood that. But I also felt that that was the springboard that launched the University of Kentucky basketball program back in the prominence. So as much as it is bitter, very sweet, you know, yeah. in the way that I looked at it. So for me, I don't mind talking about it. I get the question every year when tournament time comes about. So it's not – it's a special moment. And then when I talk about the game – and Rex, you know this as a, as a player or anybody that has played before. It's one thing for an individual to get into his own, but there's another thing for the collective to get into his own, you know? And that's what it felt like, you know? And you also witness two Hall of Fame coaches take a step back. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and let the game evolve. Well, and, um, and from all my years of playing basketball and being involved with a lot of coaches, uh, Hall of Fame coaches, a lot of them aren't able to do that because they want to control the game. But Coach Patino, I mean, there was a couple of them timeouts, but Coach Patino didn't say a whole lot. Didn't say a whole lot. He was just like, he had Jamal Mashburn on the team. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I guess that That's helps. Good coaching. Yeah. You know, I guess that helps, but. Coach Patino's theme of that year was every time we broke a huddle was win on the road. And the year before that, I wasn't there. I think they went, I went 14 and 14 or something like that. And they didn't have a lot of road victories. So Coach Patino was always priming us for what is going to be and how we're going to handle the moment. And 
funny enough, the way we looked at it was the NCAA tournament is not necessarily a neutral site game. It's a road game. So we always had this mentality of went on the road after every time we broke a huddle practice, didn't matter what it was. So he instilled that in us and us being in great shape. One of the things that we had that was a psychology uh, booster for us in a, in a, in a dig at the other opponent. There's a couple of times we'll be planning games and me and uh, Pelfrey will sit there with our hands on our shorts. And after we've been pressing the whole time, 10 minutes into the game, you can see guys on the opposing team huddled over, gasping from air. And I used to yell at Pelfrey, you ready to play now? And we would see <laughs> opponents look at us like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> you guys are not tired? You know? oh, and that's how we uh, uh, game. No, we're game. on the track team. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I quit the track team after a while. That game was a seminal moment for so many people. It's one of those moments, especially for Kentucky fans that didn't play and just everyone knows exactly where they were yeah. Yeah. in that game. When that shot went up, uh, I do think about it every year. It taught me lessons. I don't play on that. You know, it was yeah. The, the backstories of the kids that stayed at Kentucky. And, and you think about Leitner and he had Hill and the other Hill and Hurley and there was Mashburn and, and he had yeah. Pelfrey and Feldhouse. Yeah. And you're like, what, how are we even on the court with these guys? But you're right. You guys just started playing as a unit and you couldn't help, but I couldn't have feelings come up from watching that Gonzaga UCLA game this year, you know, where yeah. both teams just did everything right. They hit every shot. They, they, the kids stepped up and that's what was going on then. And it was just like, you couldn't believe kids kept stepping up and Duke think, kept stepping up. I think one thing, I think one thing that, that should probably, probably be said is that, you know, yeah, they, maybe they shouldn't have been on the floor, but you got to remember Richie Farmer was recruited by Eddie Sutton. Rick tried to run him off several times because mm -hmm. Richie Richie didn't want to condition. Yep. He didn't want to condition, and Richie would get he'd be like, "I'm leaving, I'm leaving." I was like, "Rich, don't you dare leave, don't yeah. you dare leave." Pelfrey, Feldhouse, those guys had been through hell. I mean, they they they'd seen a team who my sophomore year we should have won it. I mean, we got upset in the Sweet Sixteen by Villanova, but oh, in my heart, I believed we were the best team. Yeah, um, and then. They go on the next year and have a losing season. Oh. Then you come in and you guys start going up. So by the time they're playing in that game with you guys, they're – and look, John and Pelfrey and Darren Feldhouse were great high school players. Yeah. Great yeah. high school players in this state. They had size. They were tough. We had been beating up on them for two or three summers. Yeah. Um, it, that was, and Reggie, of course. Yeah. You know, all of those guys. Just a tough bunch of dudes that – there's a reason that, that you guys were there in that moment. And it wasn't all you. Correct. It, it wasn't all me. And I was a team player and I love to pass the ball. And I've always said it. If you have a great passer, you have a great score because he can see the game in different ways, you know, and knows how to score. And then you also have a, a very good positional defender because he understands the nuances of offense. And what I will tell you is that why that Kentucky game, uh, Duke game meant a lot is it was played at the Philadelphia Spectrum. Yeah. And so back in 1990, when I was coming out of high school, um, a lot of people in the Northeast, especially New York, didn't realize or understand why I chose the University of Kentucky. Because 
when I grew up in that era, that was Big East basketball. Yeah. And you got ACC basketball up north, maybe with North Carolina on TV. So nobody ever heard of SEC basketball. There, it wasn't even a thing that was brought up. I think the only guy that I can recall that did anything out of New York was uh, 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 Bernard King at Tennessee. And that was and so Ber- And Vern Fleming. I think Vern Fleming right. w- went Correcto. to Georgia. But, yeah, Correct. it wasn't a hotbed. Yeah, it wasn't a hotbed. And the other guy that came from Boys and Girl High, high School and played at Kentucky was Ed Dabbert. Eddie D., oh, yeah. my Eddie yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and – when Ed Davender, he's older than me, but when he went to Kentucky, it almost seemed like he got lost because there was a lot, a lot of media coverage around that. When we played in that game of the in, in the spectrum, and that was our first NCAA tournament my sophomore year, so a lot of people didn't know what happened to me in my freshman year. So for a lot of people, I just had burst on the scene. Yeah, but they don't realize all the work that summer when I went back home to New York City, 159th and 8th Avenue. And that was during the time when people were wearing the starter jackets and the hat. I saw more Kentucky starter jackets and hat than I ever seen before because it was usually dominated by Georgetown and and St. John's and different things like that, people in the the Big East. So Syracuse is a big one. Um, But that's when I started to see the shift uh, of Kentucky basketball on the national stage, as opposed to it just being regional and being its own little uh, baby down there and rebuilding. But that to me signified, because a lot of people didn't want me to go to University of Kentucky. Yeah. The first comment was, was uh, Rick Pitino doesn't pull up, uh, put out pros. And the only pro he had put out at that time was Billy Donovan. Who went yeah. to so that was the knock on Coach Pitino. And I was like, well, well, he's, this is the first time you're going to meet Jamal Mashburn, so he's going to have to go. So, so, and I now I talk to a lot of guys, and Coach Patino, he came to Gaucho Gym to recruit me, and he had three scholarships. And he said to me, I want three New York City players. And at the time, New York City in that era was the best high school basketball you could find, Kenny Anderson, all those guys. He wanted myself, Adrian Autry, who went to Red, who went to Syracuse, he's now an assistant coach there, and another big guy named Anthony Pell, a seven-footer. The following year, we wound up getting Andre Riddick, who filled that spot. Yep, yep. But he wanted three New York City guys because he was like, you guys can handle the environment that you're going into and you're going to be focused, and you can also handle me as a coach. Coach Patino back then, and even to this day, he's a screamer and a yeller. And in New York City, as you know, Josh, screaming and yelling means nothing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look, adjustment yeah. for me. I was like, why is everybody <laughs> mad at me? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and you just listen to the content you know, about the how it's presented. And um, that's how we rolled. And I was the only guy to commit. I tried to get Red Archie to come because Coach Patino saw him as Mark Jackson, you know, and yeah. uh, what he really was. And uh, um, at the end of the day, I still talked to Red Archie because he was on a the circuit watching my son play. He was like, Jamal, I love Syracuse, but I should have took it down there at the University of Kentucky. And for me, that was a, a big step because it was the unknown. You know, nobody yeah. knew what Kentucky basketball was. I had no idea. I had no idea what I was getting into. That's so funny. I don't want to, but I remember moving to New York and being like at a deli 
and yeah. they'd be like, who's next? And I'd be like, oh, I'm, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. So, <laughs> you know, and I had to learn to be like, come on, I want to, I want to fucking, come on. Yeah. Like, I had to play a character. And right. also the delis around my place, uh, you had just gone into the pros when I moved to New York. I bought, I had no money. And the first thing I bought was a pair of feelers. Um, and, and I went into, uh, this one deli and I was just fucking around there like, okay, what's your name? And I said, Jamal, I don't really look like a Jamal, Most people, but they always remembered me after that. So I started doing every deli because they'd be like, Jamal, you want this? Cause they would remember me. So thank you for me getting. Oh, hey, hey, you're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. Jamal no longer is a, is a black person name. It's no longer a black person. Name. Jamal is universal. You know what I mean? It wasn't in 92. Yeah. yeah. No, not as a reason, you know? Jamal is the black version of John, you know? <laughs> right. 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 Oh God! That's cool. Man, That's so cool. Um, I know Josh is dying to answer. So you leave Kentucky, you're drafted by the Mavs, and you're there. Uh, you play with uh, a guy who's becoming one of the best analysts in the business, Jim Jackson, yeah. and you ended up playing with my teammate Jason Kidd. I know Josh is wondering uh, why why didn't uh, the three J's work in Dallas? What's the scoop? You know, it's a, a very very uh, a great question. So. I tend to, I would say we were the big three that never won a championship. You know what I mean? And we were the big three that, that happened through a draft, not through free agency. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the issue, everybody brings up the Tony Braxton thing, but that wasn't the issue. I mean, uh, who? She had a, never heard man, of her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's, she's a pretty famous singer. You know what I mean? So she's, yeah. Uh, uh, um, uh, she's special in her own right, I would say. Yeah. So, <laughs> She had an album that came out and um, it was called Secrets and she got on the Dallas uh, radio station. And I think one of my teammates that wasn't Jimmy or Jason was dating one of the Braxton sisters. And that teammate got on the bus and we're in New York City at the time and me being from New York, I had no need to hang out with them. They were all going to go to the studio to meet Tony Braxton. Somehow it never happened or whatever, whatever. And then it, the story caught wildfire after that, because when you're a losing team in the NBA, all you're going to talk about to all the beat writers is the rumor part of it. Yeah. You know how it is, right? I mean, yeah. that's the only story. They can only write so much about you losing. There has to be. A Imagine rumor. if it would have been in the Internet age. That's correct. Right. Correct. I mean, yeah, we'd, have been, we'd have been toast, you know. Yeah. Um, but. Jimmy and Jason had some other issues and it started from like a camp or something like that, that one was supposed to attend and different things like that. And it had nothing to do um, um, with me. But what I will say is the reason why it didn't work out was because of um, the organization was going through too many shifts at the time. And the who first owned it? Shift, was it Ross Perot or Don, Don Carter. Carter? Don, Don Carter. Carter. So Don Carter was the guy when Mark Cuban won the, the championship with Dirk Nowitzki. He was a guy with a 10 gallon hat. Yeah. He's the original owner of the Dallas Mavericks. He hired Quinn Buckner and Quinn Buckner had no coaching experience, but he was supposed to be a winner. He won at all high school, college uh, Olympics and all these different things. And at that time it was just me and Jimmy at that particular time. And people don't realize Jimmy only played 18 games his rookie year. That's right. He already had like a little something with the organization where 
you know, they didn't want to pay him. And when I was going through my negotiation, Jimmy would call me and I started to see what he felt because of how they were handling me. And a part of their strategy at that time was we don't want to pay you even as a draft pick more than what we paid for the entire franchise. Right. So I think they got the franchise for $16 million at that point. Right. So they had a tough time figuring that out and, and things like that. Um, then they hired Quinn Buckner. And I remember the first day, because um, I had sat out and I don't think they wanted another Jimmy Jackson situation of another player sitting out. So I sat out probably about half a preseason. And what was important to me and the reason why they started to negotiate with me a little differently, I had signed with FIBA as a shoe contract. Mm -hmm. And they gave me a huge signing bonus. And in the contract, it stipulated with FIBA that it didn't matter if you played or not that first season. So I had leverage automatically. Right. And... And so when Quinn Buckner got the job, I remember playing my first exhibition game against uh, the L.A. Clippers. And at the time, the L.A. Clippers had two elder statesmen and Dominique Wilkins and Mark McGuire. You remember that team? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah they, 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 uh, um, so I played against them and I scored 12 points. So the following day, we're playing against the Pacers or something like that. And we're in shoot around. And me and Jimmy are shooting threes. Quinn Buckman comes down and is like, oh, rookies don't shoot threes. I'm like, well, did you see what I did in college? (laughs) But we had no big players at the time. My biggest player was Popeye Jones, you know? And um, um, so we really struggled. And then came in Jim Clemens. So, and he wanted to run the Chicago Bulls triangle. And Don Nelson, I think Don Nelson came in. And the first person he traded was um, uh, Jason Kidd to Phoenix to play with you. And we got uh, Sam Cassell um, and and a couple of other pieces. And then that's when it started to dismantle. You got – did you get Mike Finley? There you go. Mike Finley. was. Yeah, Mike Finley. Uh, Yeah. That's right. Good good dude. Uh, Great dude. uh, Yeah. I want to ask – I'm going to let you go here before long, but – two questions you went to Miami and first did you learn more basketball from Pat or Rick Pat Riley or Rick Pitino and then second that experience in Miami because I, I I experienced the same thing much like being at Kentucky you're the best conditioned team in the league yeah Still. and when yes and when I wanted to ask when you went to Miami and then you were traded and you went to Charlotte, you exploded as a, as an offensive player. How much of that was a product of that work that, that you put in in Miami? Well, yeah, great question. So let me back up a little bit. When I was in Dallas in 1995, I was one of the first guys to have microfracture surgery. Yeah. So having that surgery – and dealing with the Dallas Mavericks at the time. And uh, they didn't, it wasn't like it was today where you have good therapists and rehab people. You have a doctor that says six weeks, and they expect you to be out of the court of six weeks. 
Um, so I had a real problem with them when I didn't get the proper rehab. So actually, I forced the trade to Miami. I got a chance to know one of the minority owners who came in with Ross Perot Jr. And his name was Frank Zaccanelli. And Frank Zaccanelli lived right across the street from me um, um, in Plano, Texas. And me and him became good friends. One of his good friends is Freddie Couples. So I got a chance to engage Freddie Couples a lot when I was playing a little golf. So I went to Frank Zaccanelli and I was like, hey, Frank, you know, between you and I, I got to get out of here. And he was like, Jamal, what's going on? I said, you know, I love meeting you and everything like that, but I just think I need a different different uh, place to be to evolve my game. And what I did was Frank said, well, tell me where you want to go. I said, I got two places. Indiana Pacers with Larry Brown and uh, Miami with Pat Rowley. What I learned from Pat Rowley was different from what I learned from Rick Pitino. Rick Pitino is a, uh, a, a teacher by nature, motivator, uh, 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 wants to stay in the gym. Pat Rowley is a CEO. Pat Rowley's more of the, how do I manage all of basketball operations, not just a player? Pat Rowley was much more into how can you get 1% better? Pat Rowley taught me probably a lot more about business than he did about basketball. Yeah. And Pat also taught me about and showed me a way of never arrive. And if you feel like you've arrived, you're already headed downhill. Though. So Pat used to sit and talk to me. I used to knock on his door and different things like that. Um, and just sit and chat with him. I negotiated and figured out how I can get out of Miami um, through Pat Rowley. But me and Pat have a great relationship, you know, and even great. to this day, uh, he still brings me into this office. So Pat is more, he knows basketball. And what I will say about Pat Rowley, if you need somebody to, re, to reinvent your culture, establish it, um, execute it, and have people buy in, Basketball-wise, Pat Rowley is your guy. He would be, if Pat Rowley wasn't a basketball coach, Pat Rowley would be one of the CEOs that we look up to in a Fortune 500 or a Fortune 20 company. That's how good he is, you know. Um, the other guy that I learned a lot from was Dick Mata. Hell of yep. an offensive mind. And Dick Mata, I learned a lot about offense at the small forward and shooting guard position. The guy that I learned the most from as far as managing people in the NBA, it's Paul Salas. Paul Salas. I was with Paul. I was with Paul in, by in Phoenix. Far the best man. Great man. Of great NBA man. veteran players, you know, because he played and he identifies, you know, he'll challenge. I, I remember Paul getting in the face of Derek Coleman and ready yeah. to You know, that's how <laughs> Paul was the man. So those guys have influenced me in my uh, professional career, parenting and also business. And uh, um, so that's how I look at that. Uh, Rick is still probably the best individual teacher of the game that I've been around. And Pat, as far as challenge you and being able to draw up a play at any particular time to get a shot yeah. and you just got to make or miss it is Pat Rowley. Mm. So to me, he's the Bill Belichick of NBA basketball. Everybody talks about Popovich, but when you want to see somebody break it down and uh, create an organization, by far, Pat Rowley. 
Kentucky on Kentucky on Kentucky. That's right. That's right. We talked about Kentucky basketball. That's right. Really? That's right. No, when I first got there, me and Pat very rarely talked about Kentucky basketball. Pat was all about business, you know, and then later in our, uh, um, as we moved away from one another and got reconnected, I'm now a season ticket holder of the Miami Heat. We started to talk a little bit more about Kentucky basketball and different things like that, but an amazing individual and uh, for what he's accomplished, you know, and the pressure he puts you under in practice is very similar to what Coach Patino did. Mash, um, we, we haven't even scratched the surface on your businesses, uh, all your successes in business. Uh, wanted to talk more about Jamal Jr. out there with Richard. I'm very, I know you're proud. Uh, are you going to get out and see him play a bunch this year, I hope? Yeah, you know, um, you know, he went to the University of Minnesota last year and I only got to check out one game because of COVID. And, uh, yeah. you know, I got a chance to see him and stuff like that on television. And I like the way he progressed. And then when Richard got fired, you know, we went through a process. There were probably 18 different schools and a lot of SEC schools um, after him and a Big 12 schools. And the reason why we decided on Richard is that um, I was sharing with him on, you know, this basketball is business, you know, and um, a lot of times you're not going to get a straight answer from people if it impacts their, their business. You know, they will not sell you anything. And Richard and the Patino family have always been honest um, um, with me and, and, and with Jay. And Jay just felt the comfort level of keeping it in the family. I mean, um, we had some other ones that were looking at him and they were willing to do a lot of different things. But like I told Jay, it's, it's a, you know, to me, it's all about the relationship, you know, at the end of the day. And when times get tough, you find out a lot about a lot of people, you yeah. know, not in the good times. You know- yeah. You talk about honesty. Uh, and I'm, before we go, I want to tell this one story on Jabal, Josh. Um, yeah, I don't know if you even remember, remember, but I had just finished playing and you were, it's probably around 2003 or four. You were right at the end. Yeah. And uh, Jamal had a knee problem that was really messing with him near the end of his career, but he was still owed a considerable amount of money. And I had already been through this once with, with my, a a few years earlier, you know, I had money left on my deal that, um, you know, I wasn't going to be able to play. They had deemed me medically unable to perform. And Jamal called me and he went through this and said, I still got a year left. I still got money. And you know, what, what do you do? I said, they need to pay you your money, Jamal. And he said, yeah, but I'm not going to play. And I said, yeah, but you've already earned. He said, yeah, but I'm, I wouldn't feel right about it. I remember that. Yeah. You remember that? I remember that. And you know what that led me to? That led me to really start to research and understand the medical side of it. Because there's a clause. If you play 41 games or if you play 41 games or less, insurance picks up. Insurance pays 80%. Yeah. So when they try to negotiate with you, they try to hit that mark where they don't have to pay anything or even the 20%. So they lowball you. So I was with his original organization and Bob Bass in Charlotte and um, Bob Bass, you know, God rest his soul. He was one of the, Bob Bass is one of the people that a lot of people don't know this. I negotiated my second contract and went into Bob Bass's office after I got traded. And he was the president of the organization at the time. I said, Bob, and this is how the negotiation went. Bob, you like me, right? 
He's like, yeah, he know Bob Southern, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we love you. I like you. He's like, oh, good, good, good. <laughs> Maximum deal. He said, yeah, 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 let's do that. <laughs> Maximum years. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. 24 hours later, it was done. Wow. That's how Bob operated. And so Bob, I had the relationship with Bob. And I said, Bob, I'm not going to play. Bob actually offered me, and I turned down two years, $24 million, because I knew I wasn't going to play. And I had one year left. And I was hesitant about taking the $10 million because I wasn't playing. But then once I did the research on, well, shoot, they're not coming out of pocket but $2 million. That's right. <laughs> hey, insurance. Yeah, let's go. You know, so, so they, they allowed me to do some things. And, and uh, uh, so Rex is at 100%. I do recall that and remember that, that that was the trigger in me of because one thing you got to realize about athletes playing at the, the NBA level and even at the NCAA level, they kind of make you feel like you owe them something. And it's a very interesting dynamic when you're providing that service, but they make you feel like you owe them. You know, like there's undue pressure for a guy to play even when he's hurt by the unsaid of how they treat you when you're walking by them. It's, it's a very weird thing. So even to this day, when I hear players talk about they're not playing, they're resting, that never happened in our game. No, never happened. Never happened. Put ice on it, it and we'll see you out there. That's right. That's right. Take it up. The trainer didn't know as much about the body. It, it, was, it was literally like, well, Doc says you'll be ready in six weeks. Come back in six weeks. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't need to rehab. I don't need to. <laughs> nope, you got there. Nope. Put some ice on it, you know, or, or put some, some Advil. Uh, yeah, Advil was the other one, and Flexol was the other one. Flexol. Oh, <laughs> put some Flexol on it. Yeah. Rub a little Flexol on it. You'll yeah, be all right. Yeah. And you, you get out there and go. So that instance and that uh, time frame for me was really trying to, really understanding what business you're in. You know what I mean? Because... You get a lot of leverage that way, but they also make you feel like you have a responsibility to live up to a contract. And that's where a lot of guys get in trouble. And Rex probably recalls when guys first started getting a hundred million dollar contract, I had to talk to Alonzo Mourning and be like, mm-hmm. hey, Zo, they gave you a hundred million already. And we were down to eat because we had a chance to win a championship with this squad, but we ran into the Knicks and Jordan, obviously. Mm-hmm. I said, Zo, why are you posting up trying to get 20 points a game? He's like, man, you know, um, 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 you know, I'm the man on the team. I'm like, so you got a hundred million because you can block shots and rebound, not because you can score. And you started to see the mentality shift of everybody trying to live up to that numbers right. all the time, rather than just playing their role of how they got the mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's a yeah. lot of undue pressure that falls into the NBA and everything like, and it's even NCAA and what they expect people to do or kids to do with as far as the program is concerned, but. You know, it's an interesting time, but rest taught me a lot, especially in that. That's bro. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Please come back again. I'm proud of you. I'm happy for you. I love you to death. And uh, you're my guy. Love you too, brother. I appreciate you, man. I still appreciate you. I got to get in that swim pool like you. I haven't. uh, There we go. I'm in there every day. switch yet. You know what I mean? But uh, you look great, man. (laughs) And probably your success too, man. Uh, 
well-deserved. And I always tell people, um, stars like you are, Rex, Rex, you have that it factor. They always seem to find a light. You know what I mean? And you've done that, my friend. My guy, my guy. That's great. Much love, Matt. Thank you. Appreciate love it, Josh. Thanks to both of you guys for letting me just listen to this and watch it. Matt, what's your favorite movie of all time? <sighs> Five Heartbeats. Five Ooh, Heartbeats. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Okay. In that vein, if you could sit front row center for any performer, dead or alive, boom. Um. I had the opportunity to sit, but I didn't go in Madison Square Garden. It would have been uh, Michael Jackson in his heyday. That would have been yeah. one. Um, I probably would have liked to have. Um, my father talks about him quite a bit back in the day. I probably would have loved to hear Malcolm X speak. Oh, wow. And Malcolm X speak where he before he went to Mecca and then after and kind of see him shift in what he thought about the human being rather than just being colored. Um, I would have loved to have done that. Other guy that I probably would have loved to have just sat down with and chatted with is Muhammad Ali. Um, he's one of my guys. I got a chance to sit down and I watched him. We had Joe's restaurant and you're familiar with Joe's uh, down here in South Beach, um, a, a world famous uh, claw place, crap claw place. And Muhammad Ali during that time, he had, uh, it was the Art Basel. And Art Basel is a big thing down here and a big thing around the world. And they had a, a like a presentation. It was GOAT, greatest of all time. And Muhammad Ali couldn't speak during this time. He came 45 minutes before I arrived at Joe's with a friend of mine, the Mater D and the waiters, they align the restaurant and they, they, they stand there and at attention and they were like, the champ is coming. Like who, Mike Tyson? Like, like who, like, you don't think of, you know what I mean? Current champ or whatever, yeah. Lennox Lewis? Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali could not talk. And the demographic of the restaurant was kids that were 10 to people that were 90 of all colors, gender. Muhammad Ali came in his entourage sat down at a table. He walked to every table and couldn't talk and did magic tricks and different things. And I've never seen a restaurant just give this man a standing ovation, just wow. his impact, you know? And that would have been one guy that I would have liked to sat and just chatted with and understood his philosophy on life and different things like that. It just came out. So those are, those are probably be. Uh, that that I can think of right now. God, great answer. I mean, I'd been like, you know, Death Leopard, and here you are, <laughs> yeah. Malcolm X before and after Mecca. Yeesh. Yeah. 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 Thanks for your time, man. Thank you so Thank much. You Thanks to both of you for letting me be on here. Appreciate it. Thanks for having anytime, Rex. You got the number. Thanks, man. Have a good one, guys. Today's episode of the Rex Chapman Show with Josh Hopkins is sponsored by Karen McGillicuddy of Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Uh, Karen wants to tell Bert that soccer ran long, but they will be there. Just put everything in the microwave. Thank you so much for sponsoring the Rex Chapman Show with Josh Howard. Josh, <laughs> that was, that was mash. That was... How do you feel, buddy? Uh, tingly all over. Ah. Maybe out of body floating. 
type of experience. Seriously, best. I know I just, but to have you and Mash, me sitting down with you two, like like lunch and me getting to ask, the, I, it's gonna, I'm very He's fascinating. Yeah, same, I, same. And again, you can see why he was so good. I mean, it, every there a lot of people have physical skills. We see it every every year. You know, athletes come and go, come and go. Six seven, six eight, six nine. It's the brain, man. The brain sets sets him apart. And uh, I mean, you you'll never find a more earnest, honest guy than Jamal Mashburn. I mean, for real, he wanted to give money back that he'd already that he'd already earned because um, he wasn't going to play. What a, what a what an inspirational guy. And and when I say that, not bad, not basketball. Sure basketball, but not sure. basketball. He he's he is a role model for young guys like me, young guys that grew up in, in the Bronx, um, young kids all around this country and world that are, you know, striving to become all you used to strive for was to become a, a professional athlete, many mm-hmm. people. Now you know, we're seeing these guys, Dwayne Wade and Michael and and guys like um, Jamal that are making real money, real generational money mm-hmm. and able to show youngsters that it can be done. And it's just a beautiful thing, right? It is. God, it, you feel just better for having just talked to him, you know, like his, <laughs> his outlook, his God, the story of his mom teaching him how to read. The, the menus at restaurants credits and to- debits and teaching him uh, that, oh. that him riding the train, riding, yeah. seeing the guys with the briefcases. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on. That's just, uh, I mean, what an inspiration. Uh, I, I couldn't be happier. Yeah. You say, don't meet your heroes, but thank God this was a but great meet Jamal Mashburn. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that was a lot of fun. Thanks for letting me be a part of that. I'll stop buddy. It was awesome. Uh, I love that dude. And we got, we we just got that one in, and now we've got one coming next week. It's a biggie. We got a biggie mm. coming next week, Josh. Yeah. You want to know who, who it is? Be? Do you know? Do you know? Uh, Stephen Curry. No. Yes, Stephen. Yep. Mm-mm. Next week. Next week. Wow, Steph. Yep, Steph. Jamal, and then Steph. He's been on wow. a tear. Stefan has <laughs> a little bit of a tear. Yeah, I might. I don't know if we should even talk to him because it's like the guy who's uh, you I know got the no no going. You know, you're like, hey, just leave him alone over there. I don't be like, oh, this run. I just, I would be afraid to talk to him about it. Me too. But All I right, will, buddy. <laughs> I know. I will too. All right, man. Thank you. Uh, next time, next week, same time. Rex Chapman Show with Josh Hopkins, powered by basketballnews.com. Woo! See ya.